Howdy folks, and welcome to the Fortuna Monsoon Podcast. My name is Chris Franks, and I'm sitting on my back porch in Austin, Texas. The sun is going down. It's a beautiful spring night. I'm here with my neighbor, Justin Sherburn. Howdy, Justin. Howdy. How's it going? Pretty good. Good, good. Glad to have you here. Glad to be here. It's a beautiful night. It is, it is. Um, tonight, we're going to be presenting a... Uh, a podcast that I call the Trans-Siberian Pilgrimage. Um, it is a, uh, a little interview I did with Olivia Pepper, who's a mystic, a philosopher, and a writer who I know from uh, her time in Austin. She started a storytelling circle called the Moon Language Story Circle, which is really cool. Uh, it actually started in my backyard at a house I was living in about four years ago. And um, she did that for... I think like three or four years. I think it's still going on somewhere. And uh, she since moved back up to the Pacific Northwest where she's from and she started writing a book. I heard about this journey she was taking. Um, it was a worldwide journey uh, in which she flew from San Francisco, went to Hong Kong, China, Mongolia, took the Trans-Siberian Express across Russia uh, all the way to Finland, spent some time in Berlin, uh, eventually made her way to Paris where she performed some psychomagic. Are you familiar with that term? I like it. Okay. I'm All right. not familiar, but I okay. like it. Well, she's going to enlighten us to that. Um, from Paris, she made her way to Iceland and then eventually back to America. So we're, we're talking a, a real worldwide journey, which is really cool. Um, Olivia brought up a subject which uh, is near and dear to my heart, which is that of the pilgrimage, uh, a holy journey, a spiritual expedition of sorts. And that's always been one of the ways in which I like to travel, or one of the reasons for which I like to travel. Um, I feel like it's a real awesome thing that we're physical beings that get the opportunity to live on this planet, live in the galaxy, in the universe, and get to actually physically experience stuff. It's really cool. Also, while we're, you know, whatever beliefs you might have, uh, I believe that we are also spiritual creatures that are experiencing things on many different levels. And, uh, and it's really cool that we get to have this physical interaction with them. So a lot of times when I'm traveling, it's because I'm working through something. Um, I've done it many times. Maybe I'm trying to explore something that's both right in front of me, very physical, um, very geographically focused, going out to the desert to hunt some kind of weird cholla cactus that I need to produce some archetypal necklaces. That was a weird one. Maybe I'll go into that eventually. Uh, or working through some relationship issues, spending three months on the road, going to New Orleans and the East Coast and Philly and trying to figure out what it is that I'm going through. Well, Olivia was going through some of her own stuff and chose to make this journey around the world to work through some of that. So without further ado, we're gonna get to her interview. It's gonna be a two-parter, um, and she's gonna tell us all about her experience traveling around the world and what she was going through and what her pilgrimage was like. Thanks for tuning in. Here's Olivia Pepper. One more thing. We start off this interview 
uh, a little abruptly talking about a card from the tarot deck called The Fool. So that's what's happening. Just to give you a little heads up, we are jumping right into, I guess, what you might say is some, some of the deep end of the, um, the spiritual journey aspects of her trip. And also, of course, being a, a mystic and a, uh, a tarot card reader as well. Um, Olivia takes us quickly, deeply into that realm. Hope you enjoy. Tell us a little bit more about the fool. Like what? Oh, what's the fool about yeah. in, the, in the tarot? Well, the fool is like its number is zero, and so I always—I mean, there's many ways that I interpret tarot, of course. But like the number zero, I think about it in mathematical terms, like kind of absolute zero. It's the, both the beginning and the end. It's sort of this like everything and nothing, and it is at least like spiritually in terms of telling a spiritual story. What it's supposed to relate to is the time when a fully developed soul is entering the world for its next incarnation. So if you're familiar mm. with reincarnation at all, it's mm. like the time when someone is having all of their um, all of their like cosmic knowledge stripped away from them so that they can address a new human life in a totally innocent way. So mm. it's definitely like a lot of innocence, but also a lot of like just feeling you know the fool is like stepping over the edge of the cliff in the right. depictions of the card Almost so it's like, like this moment of like for that person exactly yeah yes so huh. you're right about to like tumble into something and you have no way of controlling or knowing whether that's going to be objectively good or objectively bad but it's an adventure <laughs> right <laughs> so <laughs> so there's that yeah but, whoa yeah. so so you feel like this you know, in some ways relates to your trip and, uh, that you took last year. Yeah. So mm. one of the things that I'm teaching as I like go into the card is that the fool is representative of pilgrims. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really approached my trip around the world kind of as if I was also a pilgrim. Wow. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah, I, so I was looking for spiritual information and it was, I was determined to find it, even if I didn't know where I was going. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. That's amazing. So, like, that's one of the things that I've been really interested in is, is, is pilgrimages that people take. Um, and that's just crazy that that's kind of the way you thought of it. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Um, that's something I've wanted to explore with folks is, like, you know, take, taking a... Uh, a pilgrimage of sorts, um, maybe not one of the ones that people know about, or like just like taking a very personal spiritual pilgrimage, like, you know, following your own path to figure out what's going on. Um, so what, yeah, how did you, how did you get started with that pilgrimage? Wow. Um, so there's, there's one key part of this trip around the world. I flew from San Francisco to Hong Kong, then from went from Hong Kong to China, took the Trans-Siberian Express, mm -hmm. was in Russia, Finland, Germany. But all of those things sort of filled in around the idea that I wanted to go to Paris on September 7th to mark this very special personal day, which was the day between me and my friend Jake's birthday. And Jake had passed away about 10 years ago, 
and his birthday was September 6th, mine September 8th. And we had had this promise to each other to meet in Paris on the day between our birthdays when we were in our 30s. Mm. And a few years ago, the year that I turned 30, that he would have turned 30, he had already passed by that time. I really wanted to go to Paris and I couldn't make it happen. And I'd never been before. And so this year I turned, well, this, that birthday I, I was turning 34. And um, I had noticed every year that I would have this experience of feeling kind of melancholy about not being able to go to Paris. When I turned 31, I felt it. When I turned 32, when I turned 33. And finally I was like, God damn it. I need to do this before I'm halfway through. Mm. So that was like the seed. That was the genesis of it. And originally, of course, I thought, oh, I'll fly from the East Coast and fly to France the way that most people would do that trip. The direct way. <laughs> <laughs> but so I had a, a really good friend who was living in China. Mm -hmm. And we... We were actually all talking about walking across Ireland together, mm. me and these two friends that I traveled with. Mm -hmm. Didn't end up happening because of visas getting delayed in Russia. <laughs> but oh, wow. uh, but that was like our goal. And, and Mary was living in China. So she said, you know, flights from the West Coast to Hong Kong are super cheap. What if you came and saw me in China? And then we took the Trans-Siberian Express, which was something that all three of us had talked about wanting to experience at some time mm -hmm. in our lives. And then, you know, the idea was we would get to Europe and we would kind of do whatever we each wanted to do at that point. And what I wanted to do was end up in Paris on this day. Um, as well as see the Northern, the Northern lights. That was something that was a goal that kind of came up. So mm. the pilgrimage, these points of like reference for me were, that I was feeling really lost in my life, really confused, empty, and pretty depressed. And I wanted to, I guess, like wake myself back up again. Mm. I wanted to be places that I'd always been curious about. And I wanted to see if I could find a way to reconnect with myself um, I was coming off of being sequestered in the wilderness for three months while I was working on a novel, right. um, which is still not finished, but still it's close. It, yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, and I had, I'd had this idea that I was going to go and sequester myself for that time and that I was going to crank out a book in only three months. And writers that I knew, like, people who are established mentors of mine and friends who have actually published work and so on, they were a little worried about me when I went and did that. They were like, you know, are you sure you're not setting yourself up for something? And mm. <laughs> I was like, I'm fine. I'll get it. I'm fine. <laughs> and, um, and then during the time that I was there, my first love killed himself. Mm. Wow. And that was in, that was in the middle of my writing sojourn when I was, um, alone and I didn't have any kind of like phone reception. So I couldn't really reach out to people to talk. Mm. And I, without really realizing it, I think I kind of went into a pretty dark place myself. Mm. And, uh, I remember buying the ticket to go to Hong Kong 
a week after I had gotten the news that he died Mm -hmm. and having this kind of feeling of just like almost being pissed off, you know, like I was like, like mad, mad mad at him or mad at what? Yeah. Yeah. Mad at him, I guess. I mean, Mm. it was funny because he and I, he was a motorcycle rider and Mm. a motorcycle mechanic and car mechanic. And he just, he introduced me to this whole kind of like, my dad also rode motorcycles, but Sam introduced me to this, like, um, I guess you would say a touring culture, right? Okay. Of like mm-hmm. long distance motorcycle touring. Yeah. And we had had this conversation at some point when we were teenagers and we were together about how we were going to go and ride motorcycles in the steppes of Mongolia. Mm, that would be awesome. <laughs> yes, it would mm. be awesome. And I knew he had never done that. And there was this part of me that was just kind of like, fuck you, man. Like, uh, I'm going to fucking Mongolia. You're going to do it. <laughs> Instead, you're gonna, you're still going to do it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, oh. and, and I think that was coming from, like, me feeling pretty kind of just, like, laid low in my yeah. own way, um, but being kind of clawing my way out of it, I guess. Hmm. Wow. So, yeah, well, that's a big way to all of a sudden put yourself out there because... I mean, you were, you were up in the woods in the Northwest again, weren't you? When you were, when you were working on that book. Yeah. So you were like deep, far away and now you just bought a ticket to basically put yourself back on the map. um, Yes. Take yourself out into the world again. Wow. Yeah. So I went before, before going to Hong Kong, I went back to Austin just for a little while. I think I was only there for maybe three weeks or something, Mm -hmm. kind of like shoring up some details with my material life before heading out to California and then flying from San Francisco to Hong Kong. And it was a whirlwind that that was in the beginning of 2016. And so I entered into the yurt on my hero, Richard Brodigan's birthday, January 29th, (laughs) and was there February, March, and all of April, and then was back in Austin for a little bit in May, was in L.A. just briefly, and drove from L.A. to San Francisco, was in San Francisco for a couple of days, and then flew to Hong Kong. So it was this whirlwind experience. And um, yeah, I mean, I've been nomadic for the last couple of years, but most of the places that I've been wandering to, they don't feel as um, otherworldly as to say like, oh yeah, and Mm. then I ended up in Mongolia. <laughs> right. Like are these, are these are these places that you've you've kind of been to before. You don't necessarily live yeah. there full time, but you you know them. Like, yeah, and yeah. it's also it's like I went to Boston and I stayed with my friend for a week and a half. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's not not as um, bizarre as right. like then I was separated from my friend at customs and the Chinese border patrol agent made me sample one drop from every single tincture bottle that I had. <laughs> oh, that's weird. He made you do it just to see like if you were going to like yeah. freak out or get high or, you know, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that is a really interesting way to do it. I mean, I can kind of respect that. Like, honestly, like that's, yeah. you know, that's kind of a cool way. I mean, better than just like throwing them all in the garbage and refusing you entry. You know? Yeah, no, no, they were just like, take them, like, uh, and then, and then I took one, and then I took another, and then I took uh-huh. another, and I'm an herbalist, so right. I travel with a lot of herbal medicine, mm-hmm. and 
I thought maybe once I had taken some out of three bottles, they would be done. But they were like, no, like gesturing to me, like, <laughs> take the other one. <laughs> wow. That is so, weird. So was this when yeah. you first flew over? Like, No. Okay. This is actually in um, the border between outer and inner Mongolia, which was oh, wow. funny because by the time I had stayed in China for several weeks, I had uh, picked up a lot of Mandarin. Um, I was already around some friends who would speak Mandarin in the States mm. a little bit. So I had gotten an ear for it, but it's nothing like Mongolian. And so mm. we just had no basis of communication for with one another mm. whatsoever. <laughs> like I can understand a little bit of Russian and a little bit of Mandarin, but they were just speaking a dialect that was totally different. So wow. we had to pantomime with each other about these tincture bottles. Oh, well, that makes it fun, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh my goodness. Well, I don't. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to zip too far ahead. If you want to um, to tell us a little bit more about you know getting started on the trip and making your way to Hong Kong at first, do you want to tell us a little bit more about just getting there and kind of how the trip started off, like yeah. after getting things ready? So, I remember lying in bed in my friend Amr's house in San Francisco on a full moon the night before I was leaving and I was honestly terrified and Mm -hmm. I'm not, I don't consider myself to be a very fearful person, Mm -hmm. but it had just been building. It had been building up over the course of the weeks as I was getting ready to go. And I was finding myself almost having these like kind of anxiety attacks. Um, And there was this point that I remember really well, about a week before I left Austin where I listened to the same James Blake song like 14 times in a row. And I was just sitting on the porch, like shaking all over. Uh-huh. Whoa. <laughs> and that was really, I knew that I was working through a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and I think I was equally scared that something really bad was going to happen to me. Like I entertained these paranoid visions about, oh God, I don't know, getting like murdered somewhere, you know, or like captured by the Russians or something. (laughs) But I think I was frightened of that. And then I think I was also afraid that I was going to kind of like lose my mind a little bit Mm. while I was traveling, which as it turned out, I did, but that's (laughs) skipping way ahead. (laughs) Um, So the night before I left, it was this full moon and I was really scared. And I remember just looking out at the moon and I suddenly had this kind of feeling. I was trying to control my breath and trying to go to sleep so that I could wake up and meet my friend Katie Rose, have breakfast and leave because we were flying together from San Francisco. Katie had flown Mm -hmm. from, I think, Philadelphia or something to meet me there. And Mm -hmm. so I was lying there on the couch just trying to control my breath. And look at the moon. And I remember having this very nihilist but still very comforting thought, which was, even if you die, everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And I was yeah. like, oh, okay. Like, great. I can do this then. Like, if the only, <laughs> if, if the thing I'm worried about is death, if that's the worst that can happen, well... I guess I am going to die on this trip or whatever. So Mm. then I became very calm. And then the next day I was excited. And I remember getting onto the plane and 
this is the biggest plane that I've ever been on. It's funny because at the time I'm 33 years old, but I'm still like dazzled by the fact that I'm on this like double decker plane. There's like upstairs (laughs) in the airplane. And Mm -hmm. I was just like, this thing is huge. And I, I had never flown across the ocean before, Mm. before this, the only place I had ever been was Mexico. Okay. Outside the U S. Yeah. No, that's a big deal. I mean, I think for as, as much as people do it now, it's still an amazing thing. I mean, I still get dazzled by the planes, too. Like, I always look at them and look up the information about them as soon as I get on an, on an airplane. I want to find out, like, yeah. what, what it's called. Like, how big is it? How fast can it go? How high can it fly? And the ones that go over the oceans, I mean, yeah, they're incredible. Um, yeah. yeah. It's still an amazing thing. It was thing. extraordinary. Mm. And, then, and then it was... Um, Honestly, I can't remember which like uh, Asian airline this was mm-hmm. operating under the auspices of American Airlines or whatever. But mm. um, mostly it was Asian passengers uh-huh. uh, flying into Hong Kong and they were giving announcements in multiple dialects. Mm. And there were people, um, it seemed like there were travelers from Taiwan, China, Hong Kong mostly, but also people from Japan and Korea and Thailand. Hmm. And so people are like making this flight back. And, and it was wild because it was mostly like Asian business people. It seemed like it was kind of a lot of guys in suits and, um, going to do their, their thing maybe Mm -hmm. after coming to the States for meetings or whatever. But so then there's me and my like fellow grubby art friend just like <laughs> staring out the window like wow i can't believe this is happening oh well that's a and, great combo <laughs> yeah uh, and it was it was wild to to be there and to experience it um we flew you know i guess it's backwards through time mm. so we left uh we left san francisco i believe at around noon or one and we got to Hong Kong right when the sun was going down. Mm. And um, I don't know if you have ever been to Hong Kong. Never, know. But Hong Kong is an incredibly strange wilderness of like this, for me at least. I'm sure people who have grown up there feel differently about it, obviously. But it has several of the tallest skyscrapers in the world. Um it has these big high rises rising out of these sort of like jungly mountains that descend to meet in the bay. And it's like a city of islands and peninsulas. It's mm. all centered around this water. And there are multiple concentrations of urban density. So lots and mm. lots of little clusters of skyscrapers rising up. But it's a very technologically oriented city. And so there's a lot of digital projection projection mapping on their skyline. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's like being in a video game or like wow. I remember being there riding this ferry boat. They have ferry boats from the 50s that are still running the Star oh Line. That's amazing. And they're all kind of like they're very kitschy and very cute, but they're oh. also very kind of decrepit. Mm-hmm. And so riding across between these different points of Hong Kong and looking up at the skyline. And I remember feeling like I was in like Blade Runner or something. Yeah. It (laughs) sounds like like it. Oh my God. Yeah. It was pretty trippy. Wow. Um, so yeah, we arrived there and 
took a train and we could see from our landing as the sun was going down, we could see one of the things that we would go to um, as a sort of impromptu pilgrimage, Mm. the world's largest sitting Buddha statue Mm. is on an island there. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So when we were flying in, it's huge. (laughs) I'll have to, I think it's like, oh my gosh. I remember, of course it's in like meters, but I think, Mm. I think it's 260 feet tall. That's huge. That's enormous. And when we were flying in, I saw it like glinting in the sun Mm. and I had not decided in advance to go and see it but i was like i'm gonna go see that buddha yeah (laughs) um and i did so yeah that's cool yeah but the first ferry out there to get to the buddha we took a we took a combination of things we took a ferry a train and then we took a sky car Mm. (laughs) that's cool like a ski lift kind of thing yeah yeah it carried us on these cables over this really dense jungle. But the cool thing is that you could see down below where there's a path that the very adherent people will walk Mm. to go and see the Buddha. Mm. Yeah. There's like a long winding path that I think my understanding is that it takes a full day to walk there. Mm. Uh, So the statue is called big Buddha and it's on Lantau Island. And I think everybody has to take, some combination of boats and trains to get out there Mm. um and it's right near a monastery and so there's people who live there full time and sometimes i think that like the monks are the ones walking these paths but Mm. it's very it's very beautiful and very like um i don't know it it brought about some extraordinary feelings for me you Mm. climb these many, many sets of stairs to get up to it. And the statue itself is just about 115 feet tall, but then it's Mm. on this like platform and then there's the stairway up to it and it's very imposing, but you can see it getting closer and closer when you're in the sky car. Mm. You can kind of like, you know, the, it'll come past the, like the mountains, the trees will obscure it for a moment and then it'll be there. And then, it'll kind of disappear into the jungle again and then you'll come closer and you just see it like getting larger and larger and larger. And, um, it was really, yeah, it was really fascinating to be there and to visit. That was my first pilgrimage on the journey. That's amazing. There's, yeah, there's these statues at the foot of this Buddha, Mm -hmm. which is, everybody calls it big Buddha, but I think it, it obviously it has another name. Um, but there are six, devas these bronze statues making offerings that are they're probably about twice the size of a human being maybe three times Mm. and they're holding up these plates and people leave coins and fruit and stuff Uh and so i made an offering there of a lucky coin that i had carried with me for a really long time how long um gosh probably at that point, probably 20 years. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a heck of a long time. Yeah. <laughs> oh. What was the coin? Yeah, a half dollar a half that dollar. I'd had since oh, I was 
Yeah. Pro- I think I was somewhere between 12 and 15. So wow. when I got it and, wow. um, yeah, that's cool. It was always, it was like a thing that I felt like kept me safe. And mm. I remember getting the feeling of nervousness and overwhelm when I was about to like give it to this Deva mm. where I was like, am I screwing myself over? Like giving away this coin. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like it has a little bit of comfort I, for you too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I left it, and That's um, cool. mm. yeah, I'm glad that I did. How did it, it feel? It like reminded me. Um, it reminded me of this scene in one of my favorite films, which is Harold and Maude. I don't know if you've oh, seen yeah. it. Oh yeah, a great film. Mm-hmm. When she, Harold makes this gift of this little bracelet to her, which you probably remember, mm-hmm. and they're sitting on the shores of this lake. And as soon as she gets the bracelet and thanks him for it um she takes the bracelet and hurls it into the lake and then he's surprised (laughs) and asks why she did that with his gift and she said that way i'll always know where it is Mm. (laughs) yeah that's that's amazing (laughs) that's so good Uh so yeah i i figured my lucky coin like if i had carried it that long and the purpose behind it was to leave it behind at Mm. this giant buddha on an island that i may never go back to in my life um as a sort of prayer like i remember the the kind of mumbled hastily mumbled prayer that i said because i i don't know how to pray in the buddhist tradition and i felt a little bit strange like i was like am i even welcome here like there are people there who are very religiously observant and then there are also tourists and there was this I was in this weird in-between state where I felt like a pilgrim, but also like I don't know anything about it and it's not my culture, not my tradition. And, um, but I kind of was just like, well, you know, divinity is divinity and the spirits hear us if we approach in a spirit of contrition. And, and so I remember going forward with this coin and leaving it with the Deva that had this platter of peaches, whose sort of Mm. role was to be, it was like a sacred creativity kind of was what that Dave was about. So mm. I was like, you know, thanks for making me an artist. But if you can make being an artist a little bit less of a path of suffering for me, I'd appreciate mm. it. Yeah. was kind of <laughs> the feeling. <laughs> that sounds like a reasonable prayer. That's good. That's, I think that's, yeah, I can understand that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's cool. So yeah, we were we were only a few days in Hong Kong, but we went and there was a point where um, my phone, which I was carrying with me, you know, has the little health app because it's like a smartphone. It counts mm-hmm. all your steps. And um, there was a point where Katie and I got back to our hostel room in, um, it, we were like across the bay from where we had gone for the day. Mm-hmm. And we got back to our hostel room. Nope. Equivalent of nine flights of stairs. <laughs> say that again. We because just lost of how you there when you, hilly. We just lost you when you said you had just oh. gotten back to your uh, just gotten back to your hostel room. Oh yeah. So I looked at the app and it said that I had climbed the equivalent of ninety-seven flights of stairs. Whoa. Because of how hilly <laughs> Hong Kong is. That's crazy. So, yeah. That's a lot of stairs. I mean, that that's like the... basically to like a top of a skyscraper. You were you had. Climb the equivalent of about ninety-seven flights of stairs. Um, yeah, and you're in your the distance you had walked up and down in Hong Kong. Um, yeah, um, 
I guess, yeah, you want to kind of carry off where we left off there. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, it was funny, too, because um, I was just dealing with all kinds of adjustments. I mean, obviously, yeah. there. this is my first trip to anywhere other than Mexico. Mm-hmm. And Asia is just so much more dense than the U.S. Yeah. So much more dense. And all of the cultural values are different. And there are things that you can hear about, but until you experience them, you don't really know what they're like. So mm. one of the biggest things for me getting used to was like, um, we were stared at a lot and huh. for a, a wide variety of reasons. And I don't, I, honestly, it didn't even matter to me that much that people were staring. Like I didn't take it personally. I wasn't too offended by it, but after being looked at all day long mm-hmm. by crowds. So I would be back in my room like, oh my God, no one's looking at me. You know, kind of, <laughs> it took me a couple days. And Hong Kong was definitely a little bit like that. Um, wow. But, but also there are parts of Hong Kong that are incredibly kind of like cosmopolitan and diverse. And there's just like a lot going on. And there's places where people are not observing you at all. Like they mm. could care less that you're there. Yeah. Um, but the closeness of people and the smallness of spaces was a lot to adjust to. And also I'm a very dedicated coffee drinker Mm. and, um, coffee. I love tea as well. And that's kind of part of why I wanted to be in China because I adore tea and Gong Fu Cha tea service. Mm. But I was suddenly without my regular coffee. So I was like jet lagged, couldn't really drink coffee because the way that they just like the kind of coffee that I like is not present. It's mostly like sweetened coffee in a can. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm certain that there are coffee shops to be found, but I didn't know where they were. And I was kind of just exploring. So getting used to like not drinking coffee, drinking more tea instead and being jet lagged. And so the first, the days in Hong Kong are kind of this like blurry, beautiful fairy tale, (laughs) um, I saw some extraordinary art, mostly mm-hmm. contemporary art, and we visited these cemeteries. I always go to see cemeteries when I'm traveling. Huh, why is and, that? Um, well, I think in some ways it might be a little bit of like a weird superstition that I developed. Both of my parents are really open about death and my father was raised with a lot of influence from the Penobscot tribe of American Indians Mm. in Maine and my mom you could call her kind of like a I guess a nature-based pagan or something she would probably Mm. object to the term but (laughs) she was always observing the wheel of the year and the seasons she's very oriented toward trees and stones and life cycles of things. And so Mm. my upbringing involved a lot of maybe fixation on death. (laughs) And I've just always loved cemeteries. And my feeling has always been that um, I don't really care what the living think about me being in their space, but I'd like to get permission of the dead. Hmm. Which is kind of funny. So I wanted to go... I mean, I, I remember I went to Hong Kong Cemetery and um, I did something that I often do, which is that I chose a grave that looked like it was untended and I hmm. just brushed it off and decorated it with orchids. And it's not like it's one of my ancestors, but I just was like, here, I'm I'm here to like make this little offering and I hope that, you know, you'll welcome me into your city. And hmm. um, yeah, 
I'm, I'm a superstitious wow. person and <laughs> I am a, I am a professional witch of sorts. So I think it makes sense that I would uh-huh. <laughs> go that route. But, yeah. um, but yeah, you also can learn a lot about a place by learning about it's dead and, and how people um, like take care of their dead or what their cemeteries are like. Yeah. Um, what was it like there? Well, that was something like the thing that I walked away with about Hong Kong, I learned from the cemeteries, which mm. was that Hong Kong has always been an incredibly cosmopolitan city. Um, we were there and we were seeing some graves from the 1880s that were graves of uh, Italians, Filipinos, people from Australia, wow. Ireland, missionaries from England. Um, there were all sorts of people buried there. There's a huge Jewish cemetery in Hong Kong with a mm. lot of stones from the 20s and 30s. Um, there's an Arab cemetery there. And many of these have very old graves in them. So Hong Kong has been mixed for a long time, hmm. 200, 300 years. Hmm. Um, so that was something that I learned from exploring that. Some really fascinating things that I came away with from visiting cemeteries in Hong Kong is that um, people, I don't know, there's a, people in the U.S., U.S. citizens like so much space and expect so much space in life. You know, we have conversations from like several feet apart. Totally. (laughs) But even even in death people in hong kong don't expect much space wow. the graves were like very crowded together <laughs> just sometimes even like seemed like they were on top of each other uh-huh um just filled into the city cemetery mm. and uh yeah i i learned that there was a lot of history there and a lot of people had been through for for various reasons but but that it had always been a city that was full of a lot of diversity mm. That is very interesting to to learn that from the cemetery. That's really cool. Yeah. I don't, I've heard of people, I mean, obviously, like, you know, I've been to New Orleans many times. I know many people go to the, like, the cemeteries in New Orleans, you know, for different reasons because they're very interesting. They're above ground. Um, I've heard of, you know, people liking to visit cemeteries for different reasons, but I've, I don't think I've ever thought about what you can learn from a a, a place by its cemetery, and I think that's really that's really cool. That's an interesting thing yeah. that you took away from that. Yeah, there's a few. I mean, I always like to learn about, I always look at how people treat their dead and how people mm. treat their trees. What were the trees like in, in Hong Kong? A lot of them are like these fast growing um, sort of jungle trees. Mm. I no species, but there were lots of like plumeria trees, um, blooming, blossoming trees. And we, Katie and I actually went to a, what would you call it? Um, a sort of arboretum, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Botanical garden and arboretum. And so there's a lot of greenery in, in Hong Kong. It's fascinating too, because of the way that they build, there's a lot of areas where like, you know, rather than this kind of structured, uh, controlled nature, they'll have like (laughs) <laughs> it'll be like one block of just like concrete where people live and then mm-hmm. a block of just untouched jungle madness. Whoa, that's crazy. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. Huh. Um, I think it's probably because the hills are too 
steep at certain points to even bother with developing. Wow. Yes, but, they just leave you it. You know, like, right. In the U.S., hmm. people, like, they grade that stuff and they, yeah. you put all this effort into reinforcement. But I think there it's just been like, well, if you can find a flat enough spot to put a skyscraper, we'll put a skyscraper there or a high rise hmm. and then we'll just leave the jungle around it. Huh. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> So, so yeah, we finished our time in Hong Kong and then, and then we went into mainland China and, oh God. And there was this other part of this that I don't know if you want to talk too much about like travel complications, but mm. tell, tell me a bit about it. <laughs> what kind of complications <laughs> you were going through? This is not my, this is not my favorite part of the story to tell uh -huh. because I don't, you know, I don't, the griping parts of stories are the least interesting except for the person telling them. Mm. But in brief, a visa expediting agency in the U.S. Mm -hmm. had conned me hmm. by holding on to my passport for a long time to try to get me to secure my Russian documents with them because they had gotten huh. my China documents for me. Uh -huh. And then they were supposed to return my passport and my China visa. And, but they wanted me to process my Russian visa with them, but oh, I didn't wow. want to because I felt that their services were too expensive. Hmm. So long story short, they held my passport until it was too late. And I had to sort of bully them into overnighting my passport to San Francisco so that I could fly out. Wow. But what that meant was I arrived in China with a visa, but without a Russian visa. Huh. So I had to go to the consulate in Hong Kong. So what I had to do was cross over with my passport into mainland China from Hong Kong mm -hmm. and then essentially FedEx my passport back to Hong Kong. Huh. And then I was in China without a passport because Weird. the Hong Kong consulate was arranging my passage to Russia at that oh, time. Wow. wow. And they just needed your passport. They need to have it on site. Mm -hmm. Wow. Huh. Well, that, that's pretty nuts. I mean, yeah, you, your passport is your lifeline if anything happens to you. So that's yeah. how long were you without it? Uh, several weeks because then, huh. uh, a typhoon came wow. <laughs> that hit Taiwan at that time and, wow. and hit Hong Kong as well. Hmm. And so that's why, that's why that's the beginning of why we didn't end up getting to Ireland because we took so much extra time in China. Hmm. Hmm. But um, did you, did you finally get your, um, your Russian visa all right? I did. Yeah. I did. The, the plan was, we didn't know if it was going to come through, um, but the plan was that we were going to, we hadn't even gotten our tickets on the Trans-Siberian yet. This trip was so poorly planned and it's remarkable that we all mm. survived. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> when I look back at it, I'm like, wow. Because we just, we showed up to, this is skipping ahead a little bit. It's all right. But it's important to know that we, we arrived in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, without tickets on the train. Oh, wow. Is that where you get on the Trans-Siberian Express? Some people get on in Beijing, okay. but here's the my insider tip on the Trans-Siberian, hmm. is that it's much cheaper to board in Mongolia than huh. it is in China. Okay. And so we decided to take local trains through China and get on in Mongolia instead because it was a difference of about, I think it was four or $500 USD. That's significant. Yeah. Very significant. Yeah. Hmm. So, so we decided to do it that way, but we didn't know if we were going to be able to get on. There's not really hmm. information on the internet about the train schedules. Wow. Um, so. So you just got to go and hope for the best. And I guess, you know, yep. 
worst case scenario, you would be stuck there for a bit and just have to wing it. But, you know, <laughs> it sounds like you got on. So that's good. We did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's forward in the story. But then, so the first place we went was to meet my friend, Mary Cotterman, Mm. who I think you know as well, yeah, the potter, definitely. yeah, mm-hmm. ceramicist. So we met her in Chaozhou where she was living and had been living for some time. And that was, it's wonderful to explore a place with someone who already knows locals yeah. and speaks the language. And, you know, I felt like I made friends there. I gave a lecture on tarot there, awesome. which was translated and That's it was so wonderful. Cool. Yeah. Mm. So Chaozhou is described by... Mary and Sohan um, as actually being the New Orleans of China. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Sohan describes it that way because it's it's on a river and the river has a long-standing, very important kind of like tradition of fishing. There's also a regional style of music there and there's a local dialect called Chaozhou Hua, which is similar, mm. I guess, to like a Creole dialect. Huh. It's like a very old fashioned version of Mandarin. And some of the old people only speak Chaozhua. <laughs> um, and it's hot and humid, very mm. humid. And mm. it's very old fashioned. And there's like this, these old fashioned walkways that are hung with lanterns and, Whoa. you know, it kind of, kind of feels, and there's this flourishing culture of, I can't remember the name, the word in Mandarin, but it's midnight snack. Um, People are out at these food carts (laughs) in the middle of the night. That sounds Um, great. (laughs) Oh, it's it's wonderful. We had such a great time in Chaozhou. And I was there for several weeks. And um, yeah, it it was a remarkable time. It was funny because I realized then that... I don't know. I've always known myself to be pretty adaptable. But once we got to Chaozhou... I adapted pretty easily to the rhythm of life that we had there. Um, hmm. And I just really, really enjoyed my time there. One thing that was wonderful was that I always like to share this with people because I'm vegetarian and I haven't eaten meat really for my whole life. Hmm. And so everybody was like, you're not going to be able to be vegetarian in China. Like you're not hmm. going to be able to do it, which is not true. It definitely helps if you speak Mandarin. Mm. but (laughs) people teased me and they called me Buddha all the time. (laughs) Really? Like Chinese people teased you like this? Yes. Wow. That's funny. Uh, That's good. (laughs) Some people were like concerned about where I got my strength. That was like Uh the most, the most common thing was like, how do you have energy to live? Your mystery strength. Oh my God. Uh, (laughs) So not just your like physical strength, but you're like, your zest for life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like, oh, how do you keep your, your chi balanced without right. eating meat? But wow. Huh. But they were also very accommodating. They were really kind. I mean, That's I'm cool. sure there were a few times that I was eating, you know, like kind of the essential, like equivalent of bone broth or something like that. Okay. Like, I'm sure there was traces of things in things, and I'm not yeah. that strict. Mm. Um, and I did eat, end up eating these weird little shrimp things at one point without really realizing what they were, mm. but they were pretty good. So it didn't bother me too much. But. But yeah, the food in Chaozhou was fantastic. And Midnight Snack is great culture. Mm. There's a lot of like <laughs> sauteed noodles and a lot of these weird fried snacks, a lot of fruit. Mm. Um, yeah, it was it was great to be there yeah, for that long. That sounds amazing and delicious. And just imagining like these food carts and then amidst like the, the lantern lit streets sounds so cool. It was great. It was yeah. very like romantic and... And also we were, 
I was finding myself just connecting with artists mm. right away, even though we didn't have much of a language in common. Mm-hmm. I would go and sit in this, there was this man who's a, he does traditional ceramics repair using gold. Like oh, cool. in Japan, it's called kintsugi, but um, of course the the Japanese say that they invented it, and the mm. Chinese say that they invented it, and nobody right. knows whose technique it is. Right. There's but, so much um, back and forth between them. Yeah, yeah, he was practicing this form, and he did a beautiful job with it. And he had this wonderful studio where all of his repairs were being done, and this mm. low tea table, and there was a mural on the outside of the building done by a friend of his, and. They were just these three men who were all artists and they would hang out and smoke cigarettes and talk and laugh and have tea. And we took to going and spending time with them in the evenings. And then we would all pile onto scooters together, like three or four people to a scooter Uh (laughs) and go get midnight snack. Awesome. Um, My favorite thing was a fresh grated ginger pancake. They, They grate fresh young ginger and then they fry it in this sort of like almost like a latke, but mm-hmm. with raw young ginger root. Wow. And it's sprinkled with cilantro, and it was Whoa. the best, and I miss it all the time. Yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Do you, know so. what, do you know what it's called? Mm, no. It's yeah. just translated as gin, ginger pancake. Ginger pancake, yeah. Wow. And Yeah, and I can't remember the Mandarin, but, but yeah, mm. it, was, it was good. And then there was a, there was a monastery there that had a vegetarian restaurant across from the monastery so I would go there a lot and have my my meals there because I knew I could eat there safely (laughs) yeah that's great that's convenient yeah and and I made friends with a woman there who had fallen in love with the coffee culture of the Pacific Northwest Mm. and um, she's Chinese but she opened a coffee shop in oh, wow. Chaozhou. Oh, wow. And so that's great. She would she would make like pour over or mm. Chemex for us. Oh, that sounds yeah. like no wonder you liked it so much there. You got your coffee back. <laughs> I know, I got my coffee back. <laughs> <laughs> uh. so, so yeah, we were there for a few weeks and then and then the journey north began. Mm. Once mm-hmm. once we got our our visas or my visa um, we got it back finally after the typhoon had settled and we had gone through the, the night of the, one of the ghost festivals where it was interesting because at night in Chaozhou, it, the streets are all very active and there's music and lanterns and teenagers going around and people selling things on the side of the street. Hmm. And then the night of this one holiday, the streets are completely empty because Whoa. it's bad luck to go out huh. at night. Whoa, that's wild. And so we went through that. We went through the typhoon. We went through 4th of July, which is not a thing, obviously, Mm. Mm because it has nothing to do with them at all. But it was funny because a few of the folks who know something about the United States Mm -hmm. (laughs) would be like, "Um, happy, happy Freedom Day. Like a couple (laughs) people said to us. Oh, wow. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then we, um, we started north and we went and we flew from Shenzhen to Beijing um, because the train trip would be long. China's huge. You know, huh. I think people forget how big China is. And the trip from Chaozhou to Beijing would have been, I think, a 16-hour trip. Oh, that's long. Beijing is yeah. pretty far in the north. Hmm. So instead, we just took a train that took maybe an hour and a half down to Shenzhen, got mm. on a plane and we're in Beijing within like five hours of leaving Chaozhou. Mm. And um, 
stayed in Beijing for a couple of days. It was interesting to note just how different Beijing is from Chaozhou. If I started saying that if um, Chaozhou is the New Orleans of China, I think Beijing is probably the New York. Uh huh. Hmm. Um, and it's kind of like there's a lot of hustle there. Everything's happening. Very yeah. business oriented. People mm-hmm. are not as um, friendly or colloquial. It's colder mm. um, and kind of more. Yeah, more business feeling, I guess, yeah. more of an economic center. Hmm. Um, but we met some folks there and went to a monastery in the mountains again, another monastery trip. Hmm. And those were like these these little marks that I was making on my sort of personal pilgrimage. I yeah. just had this feeling that I wanted to say yes to any kind of spiritual opportunity that I had. Yeah. So we went to a monastery and I ended up doing this mountain walk along this Kuan Yin path hmm. and just had a really beautiful time there. And it, it was so That's strange cool. because when, when I look back at this, I still, I remember being very depressed, but not really hmm. knowing how to deal with being so depressed like on the train the night train um from beijing that we took to get further north to go toward mongolia i remember again listening to this omnipresent james blake album that i was listening to Mm. looking out the window and i was awake all night i just couldn't sleep on the night train and i was watching the activity of people coming and going and Mm. i was looking out the window and like almost beginning to cry but I hadn't cried at all for a really long time so it was Mm. this kind of alien feeling didn't know why I was crying or what it was about but I felt this huge kind of upwelling of grief and confusion about the world that I was living in Mm. um you know there was also weird news coming from home at that time because this is the summer before the presidential election right and so we kind of I think now it's easy for everyone to forget, but we were, we were kind of waiting for the shoe to drop. Like we were waiting for Trump to be disqualified. Right. Essentially. Like we were like, there's no way that this can be continuing. Like this is absurd. Yeah. Cause every time the news came out, it was, it was something that should have disqualified him. Like, you know, the, the grab the pussy statement. You know, and and mm-hmm. after that, I just, I mean, that was already in, I think that was the, really late in the game even. Like, there was it already was. things building up to that that were just like, I mean, pretty much any time the guy had an interview, you know, or, or had, a, you know, something on the press, it just seemed like this, this that should be it. Like, America's going to wake up and write him off or he's going to drop out. And it, he just got stronger and stronger. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember this moment when we were in China conversing with someone, I think it was in Beijing, and it was just this really gloomy moment where, you know, we were talking about the upcoming election, and we all expressed that we didn't want Trump to win, and this guy said, good, he hates us. Mm. <laughs> and he does. I mean, yeah. he he reviles China especially then he wasn't, he hasn't done it as much since he's come into office or as publicly, but at the time right. it was, that was the time when he was, you know, he said, Jaina, 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 Um, and it was kind of constant. He was yep. berating China and trade deals and so on. And so 
there was this kind of heavy feeling about that time. And, um, yeah, we got to, we got to Ulaanbaatar through this complicated, twisted maze. We took the night train and arrived in this very strange town that I could find the name on a map, but this was in the far north of China. And it's interesting because even the people look very different there. You know, in the south, the people are generally smaller, generally browner. And then at mm. the further north, you get the more sort of like Russian, some people's features are uh -huh. taller, like paler, broad shouldered. Mm. And by the time we got up into almost Mongolia, it was this very like, um, felt very remote and very industrial. There's lots mm. of like, um, industrial plants and industrial devastation and these sort of low gray wintry cities. And we had some help from this really sweet young couple on the train who helped us find the right bus to take, to get to Ulaanbaatar, got on a local bus and, um, took this bus across the plains. And that, that morning was really remarkable. I sat in the very back of the bus. There was really limited seating. And so I sat in the center seat in the back. Um, there were two seats next to each other, which Katie and Mary, my traveling companions took. And I decided to go and sit in the back mm. with my backpack between my knees, surrounded by lots of old local folks and young children. And this was like a, you know, third class bus. So mm. it was packed in people eating and um, people with like bags of meat and things that you don't usually see. And mm. we were riding along in this flat, flat landscape of Mongolia. And along the way, you see these uh, carns. And I remember thinking about visiting the dead because the dead are just buried under mounds of rock there. Really? Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. the, the Mongolians have a totally different spiritual tradition than the Chinese. Hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a shamanic religion there right. that people talk about. And they just have different, different rules that they follow. Um, mm. and yeah, we, we then crossed into Mongolia. <laughs> we, we had an amazing experience where we went to a completely abandoned dinosaur theme park. Whoa. In Mongolia. That um, is, that's really bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is actually, it's still technically part of China. Uh -huh. This is right on the border. Mm. And it was this thing that obviously the Chinese government has funneled a ton of money into because there were huh. paleontologists working in this area, like digging out these tangled dinosaur bones, but there were mm. no tourists there. Hmm. Um, and yeah, this town was very, very Weird. strange. This border town um, had this feeling of like having sprung up in the eighties or nineties. Yeah. And there were some hotels and a lot of, sort of nomadic people coming in there was one moment where we were walking trying to find something to eat and we passed this group of people with a pickup um and they had a goat that was tethered to the pickup and we went around the corner and then 10 minutes later we rounded the corner again and they were just skinning the goat on the Whoa. street <laughs> so it was like <laughs> something intense. was just happening yeah. um yeah and um we ended up at one point in this restaurant that had all these framed pictures of Javier Bardem. 
Whoa. the actor. That's really, that is very bizarre. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea like, why. That's pretty, that, like that's the only pictures that they had framed? Like it was just all Javier Bardem? That was it. That is very know. strange. Wow. Yeah. I mean, in some ways I can see why he kind of exemplifies some of the male beauty standards of the area. Like huh. you could see that the men who were getting attention kind of mm. looked like him in a way. So I think he's just maybe a sex symbol. Wow. That's amazing. Um, I mean, I guess that probably used to happen with Elvis. I mean, still happens with Elvis, but mm -hmm. it's just, you know, yeah. So there's just new, new icons all the time, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was wow. just funny. Cause I don't, I don't think of Javier Bardem as being like necessarily an internationally renowned movie star. Sure. But, he's been but getting there, there though. But but even <laughs> even even since he's become, I think, more of a renowned star, like it's still bizarre to think about like a cafe or a restaurant where that that's the only pictures that they have. <laughs> right? That's yeah. it's creepy. That's a little bit more of like something out of like a dream or a nightmare. Even though yeah. like lo love you, Harvey Bardem. I think you're awesome and mother. But you know, and, and most everything that I've seen with him. But still, yeah. very creepy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it was odd for sure. Yeah. Um, but we got, we had some of the most delicious melons that I've ever had in my life there. Mm, whoa. And even though it was summer, it was mm -hmm. July at this time, it was cold then mm. still. So you got the impression that this was a very cold area. There's mm. all these, um, the dinosaurs were out there and there was an amazing <laughs> thing where there was this room, this building that was full of remarkable uh, gemstone specimens wow. at the dinosaur park. Wow. But the power was out. And so we just went into this building alone and mm. used the flashlights on our phones <laughs> to look at these extraordinary gemological Whoa. specimens for about a half an hour. That's amazing. That is yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah. So it's very surreal. This was yeah. like entering into the, the very surreal part of the trip. Yeah. Um, Are you sure that the whole town wasn't a theme park? Because it kind <laughs> of sounds like it was. It felt like it. Also, the weird thing about this particular town is that this town doesn't have a discernible name. Huh. It's called Erlenhot, but then also Arianhota, and then mm. it's called things in Mongolian, Russian, and Chinese. Mm. And you don't really know what to call it. Wow. It has several names. Mm. Um, so we took the train from there to uh, this little tiny town called Saints Hand mm -hmm. and we got off the train there on a whim again because we wanted to go and see a temple and we found a hotel for the night um, right next to the train we got in pretty late like around midnight and found a hotel for like $11 USD or something mm. which was probably the most expensive hotel in town Wow! and um, we we went there and the following day, this was one of the, yeah, this is the surreal part where this trip just took a very strange turn for these few days in Mongolia. We, the next day woke up, took a taxi into more of the center of town and we had Google translate on our phones, but none of us can write the alphabet and we don't know how to pronounce anything. And Google translate doesn't provide any voice translation for Mongolian so mm. there's no way to even pronounce what you're trying to say uh -huh. all we could do was show people like numbers like wow. calculator stuff uh -huh. <laughs> and we managed to negotiate with this guy who was clearly offering us a ride 
we managed to kind of convey where approximately we wanted to go using mm. pantomime about the temple. And mm. he agreed to take us. He took us first to this little sort of enclave where the nomads come and they set up their yurts during the winter. Uh-huh. And some people live there full time. He clearly lived there full time. Mm. And we know this because he got his like nine-year-old son to get in the car with mm. us who was just like coming along. Yeah. And... He took us out to the temple and this was a really interesting place to visit because the Buddhism in this part of the world is kind of much more brutalist than mm. any Buddhism that I think I was familiar with in the West. Mm. Um, there's a lot of skulls, a Whoa. lot of demons and a lot of like energy of death. Whoa. That's um, intense. Yeah, and we went to this place that was just, the energy there was really, really wild. There was this place where you could go and you could burn things that you, burn these slips of paper that my understanding of it was that it was like bad feelings or bad parts of yourself that you needed to like huh. burn away. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of sort of contrition and so we visited there and that was another very spiritually profound thing for me. He took us to these caves after this. Um, the man who we ended up with was just, he was one of the saints of our adventure because mm. he and his son took us, they took us to meet camels in a field and pick up these beautiful agates that were just strewn all over. Oh, he took wow. us to the temple that we were looking for. And then after the temple, he took us to these caves, hmm. these meditation caves where some people had died hmm. in the caves. That's where they would just go and they would kind of meditate to death. Whoa. That's, and, that's um, very interesting. Kind of amazing. Yeah. 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 Hmm. And, you know, you got the impression that that hadn't happened for a long time. Like it was obviously huh. something that happened several hundred years ago. Okay. But nonetheless, people were bringing these offerings into the caves, um, offerings of food and candy and candles and stuff. Hmm. And when you would go into the caves, the feeling that I had in there was just, it was like a, I had almost like abject terror going into the really? caves. They were full of flies eating all, all the offerings. Uh -huh. So you go in and there's just this like buzzing and like the sound of writhing maggots. And Whoa. it's all dim. And you see these little carved rock enclaves where people sat. And the legend is that they meditated until they left their mortal form. Wow. Um, wow. And from there, this was one of the moments that I hope lives in my memory forever. Sometimes when I'm um, thinking about my own life, I have these times where I think of memories that I hope that I can preserve until I'm gone. Like, mm. I hope I hold this for the rest of my life. I hope that yeah. this is one of the last things to go. And this feeling was one of them. We, One of my travel companions was sick and was feeling like really... She just had a cold, but um, was just really, really worn down and exhausted and was kind of done. And we were having trouble conveying that we needed to, like, wrap up our trip. And mm. so we're driving in this little car with the man and his son. We don't share any language with them. 
going through this painted desert. Uh, it's part of the Gobi and he just stops and the sun gets out and is gesturing like, follow me, follow me. And we're just out in the middle of nowhere. And the sun like is running down this little path and we're kind of falling behind all of us a little tired and kind of overwhelmed by everything that we've seen. This was after the caves and after this sort of gloomy hilltop temple where there had been like a massacre. The Buddhists had come in and massacred a lot of the indigenous shamans there and then put up this temple. So it's like Mm. a there's strange feelings yeah and um so he's running down this little path the desert there is so beautiful and full of plants that i have never seen and lizards that i've Mm. never seen and it's just a totally unknown world and he rounds this corner and i see that he's like gesturing follow 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 and then he kneels down and i see that he's kneeling at the skeleton, the fossilized skeleton of a young brontosaurus that's Whoa. like 35 to 40 feet long. Wow. And is just exposed from the desert. That's and crazy. It's like this, yeah, it was a perfect <laughs> skeleton. Oh my God. And I, I like knelt and put my hand on the skull and just felt it. Um, wow. Yeah. That's and then nuts. from there we were somehow able to convey to this guy, I don't know how this happened. Hmm. We were able to convey to him that we wanted to stay the night in a yurt with a nomadic family and that he would pick us up in the morning. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And he did it. That's great. (laughs) He got us a yurt. We went and stayed in a yurt and it was, I had really amazing dreams that night and ended Mm -hmm. up waking up at dawn and walking across the hill and finding a stone, which I don't really take things with me a lot when I'm traveling, but mm-hmm. I found this incredible stone that I still have on on every altar that I've set up since that I found out in the desert mm. in Mongolia. Wow. So. That's cool. Yeah. Wow. That felt like the end of one chapter of the journey because yeah. the, the next thing that happened was we arrived in Ulaanbaatar and Ulaanbaatar is a trip and a half of a city. That place is wild. <laughs> <laughs> is it? What's going on there? Um, well, there's, there's the nomadic shaman culture that comes in and kind of like floods the city during the winter. I think that they overwinter mm. there sometimes. Mm-hmm. But so there's a lot of people like moving livestock, dressed really traditionally, wearing furs. I saw someone riding with like a hunting eagle on their shoulder, just riding in the city. Oh my God. (laughs) There's, there's also a ton of business that's there. So there's Mm. a lot of like Russians and Chinese doing business. And Mm. then there's just people living their lives. And then there's this very funny underground subculture that I didn't get very much exposure to, but you can feel it. Like Mm. I had read about it, um, that there's a, really big techno scene there and there's like these big raves that happen in these abandoned buildings and there's this sort of like nihilist frontier feeling of Ulaanbaatar whoa (laughs) Um, that's amazing yeah it feels like a city that you could disappear in like it feels like if if you ever needed to be a fugitive just (laughs) go to Ulaanbaatar no one is ever going to find you (laughs) wow oh my god yeah what a combination yeah (laughs) yeah and then there was where we 
were extraordinarily lucky and we arrived on the day that we needed to get on the Trans-Siberian and we were able to convey without using any language, just using my clumsily written Cyrillic for (laughs) Moscow (laughs) and pantomiming about the train, we were able to secure ourselves a single train compartment Mm. on the Trans-Siberian Express. That's awesome. Good job. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. We'll pick up right there on the next episode where Olivia boards the train with her travel mates and proceeds west. She'll tell us a little bit more about some of the struggles she was going through, um, the emotional things, the things she was processing in life, uh, as well as more about the experiences that she was having, of course, on her travels. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and tune back in for the second part of our interview with Olivia Pepper. Subscribe and rate this podcast if you want to at Apple iTunes. Uh, Also, we're on Stitcher now. Um, And of course, you can tune in on the website, fortunamonsoon.com as well. Adios, folks.